Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Still beating. It's, it's a good thing. Turn to your neighbor and, and say to them, you know, you've got a lot of heart. You know what that means? If, if you're a child, say, I don't know, seven, eight, or a little younger, uh, something like that, take your hand and make a fist just like this, you see? And look, look, at, look at that fist. And until you reach a certain age, the size of your fist is roughly the size of your heart. It begins beating within the womb as a single chamber and then divides by twisting into four distinct chambers. If you're an adult, if you are, you know, old like me, uh, maybe older, maybe a little younger, older than children, then take your two fists and put them together like this. And that, that's the size of your heart. You got a lot of heart. You, you truly do. Uh, let me tell you some amazing things. Did you know that your heart beats 100,000 times per day? 100,000 times. That's a lot. I, you start to add it all up and, and it, it just boggles the mind. Your heart beats on average. 35 million times per year. 35 million times. In an average lifetime, an average person's heart will beat 2.5 billion times. That's billion with a B. In fact, this is amazing. Think about this. Daily, Your heart pumps your blood about 12,000 miles, which is the same distance as if you got in your car now in D.C. and drove to Los Angeles, turned around, went back to D.C., turned around, went back to Los Angeles, turned around, went back to D.C. again four times across the continental United States. That's how far your blood is moved by your heart every single day. Now you can say it with a little more conviction. You know, turn to your neighbor and say to them, you got a lot of heart. Still beating, right? You'll know if it's not. But you know, you hardly know if it is. I mean, it's not like you're aware of this all the time, is it? I mean, most of the time you just Move around and you don't even think about your heart. You don't have to. It happens without your thinking about it. Thank God it just keeps on beating, 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 beating. Now, once in a while, you become aware. A hard workout, you can feel your chest pounding. Sometimes you're a little uptight at night or you've got a murmur in your heart, a a leak between valves, or or maybe there's something going on with your hearing, or, 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 or maybe you're just more aware than others. And at night, you're trying to sleep, and you feel it beating. You fall in love. You get excited about something. You ride a roller coaster. You worship, and you get excited You feel your heart pounding. It's so unusual, though, that we say, I felt my heart pounding within me. It's an expression of something unusual that happened. I actually became aware of the physiology of my heartbeat. Now, all of you, probably most of you at least, are familiar with this chart It's called an electrocardiogram, an ECG, or we used to call it EKG. If you've got an Apple Watch, you can take your own. It's pretty simple, but kind of profound. Electrocardiography measures the electrical movements around the heart. 
What it really is measuring is to see if the four chambers of your heart are synchronized. If the four chambers of your heart are in rhythm. Because if they're not, they will actually fight against each other. And if they're fighting against each other, your heart will become inefficient and wear itself out and eventually it will quit. And then you'll know it. Then you will. These movements around the heart are pretty complex. I mean, frankly, if you'll take a look at the design of the human heart, you call me and tell me there's no God. How is it possible to see the design of the human heart among many other things and not understand the remarkable design incorporated? What engineer could come up with this? Every machine I own breaks down faster than that. Thank God. All these movements through the heart, basically from atrium to ventricle, from atrium to ventricle, zigzagging across the heart in kind of a Z. At one point, one of the ventricles, you're right when pushing your unoxygenated blood, the stuff you've already used, out into your lungs to gain oxygen again and turn bright red and then come back into the atrium of your heart to be pushed back down to the other ventricle and then pushed out to your body. It's really four, or no matter how you count them, five movements in this assembly, but it's two basic functions. And that's why you experience in two synchronized beats a couplet Boom, 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 boom. The movement is in and out. In and out. In and out. 100,000 times a day. Now, I started to recognize a few weeks ago that Psalm 89 was something of an electrocardiogram of God's heart. You see, I've been reading this morning, noon, and night for a couple of months in preparation for this series, along with Paul's teaching on constant prayer, trying to ask that the Holy Spirit would sort of open this to me. And listen, I understand very clearly that this is analogy, and, and in some ways humanizing God in a way that we can't. But, but the more I looked at the Scripture, the more it jumped out to me. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God. Love and faithfulness go before you. And and at first it didn't catch me, but then it did that these words are presented to us in heartbeat-like couplets, aren't they? I, I mean, the way the psalmist gives them to us is in pairs. Righteousness and justice and then faithfulness after love. There's always a reason for that in poetry. If you write it, you know this. This is carefully thought through. This is a theology of a kind. And so I started to say, Lord, what are you trying to show me in Psalm 89? As I see these couplets of the qualities of God, the nature of God's heart, if you will. And I realized that I could easily see these as the four chambers of God's heart. Righteousness, justice, love, faithfulness. And that there was actually a two-part movement going on here. There's an in and there's an out. And and, and the input is something we cannot create for ourselves. It's, It's something God has to engender within us. But the output is what we create as a result. And the more I studied the deeper meaning in the Hebrew, et cetera, of these words, the more I saw that was true. For you see, the Bible again and again tells us that we are incapable of achieving righteousness. We can't make it up. We don't even know what it is. We don't understand it. We don't comprehend it. We can't ponder it. Our mind does not work like God's mind. Our thoughts are not His. The Bible tells us that righteousness comes from God and God alone. But justice is what we do. Justice is how we live, it's how we act, it's how we treat others. So the input is righteousness. 
the unoxygenated blood that God draws into our hearts that we can't claim for ourselves, that then flows through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus to be completely transformed and changed. This righteousness comes from God and God alone. But once we are right with God and justified by Him, once we have become His righteousness, I'll get to this in a moment, the output is justice, and that is visible. We can see it. We know it when we behold it. And you may say, well, Jim, the same thing's not true of love. After all, I'm capable of loving. But are you really? I mean, yes, you can love. And in some of the ways that are more common, you can love a friend. You can love your spouse. You can love a child. But are you capable of agape? As the New Testament calls it, the self-giving love of God. The Old Testament calls it chesed, the covenant love of God. It, we're not capable of that. We can't produce it. We can't even fathom it. It comes from God. The Scriptures tell us we love what? Because? Do you know it? We love because He first loved us. So God gives us His love, this servant love, this self-giving love, this selfless love. And the outflow is faithfulness and faithfulness we engender. We live it. We produce it with the help of God. Now, this to me became a powerful idea, a powerful notion. If I am right with God, then I want what is right for others. If I am truly loved by God, then I want to be faithful to God and to others. This started to become a movement. I could start to hear the heartbeat as I prayed. And this notion of prayer is a thing that was taking on greater power for me, as I'm telling you, because Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And, and then again in Romans 12, 12, and these aren't even the only two places, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer look at my Greek New Testament, and I, I find that the word that is translated when Paul uses it like this is constant, continual, ongoing, is the word adioliptos, which really means without interruption, completely uninterrupted. That means nonstop, all the time, like your heart beats. You may not even know you're doing it. But if your heart stops beating, you'll know, and if you stop praying like this, you'll know because you'll feel distant from God, out of touch with God. You'll feel like your movements become harder. Something happens when we are separated from God. And then I remembered what prayer really was. Prasikaba means toward God, turning toward God. It can be translated either prayer or worship, depending on the context. And it is almost always the word that is used for prayer in the New Testament. When Jesus speaks of prayer, this is the word he uses, toward God. So prayer is turning toward God when he makes bids for our attention, and he makes them all the time. One of the most fun things that I've enjoyed about uh, your conversation with me after that first sermon I preached is the number of you who have sent me examples of how God was bidding for your attention. One mother told me about a certain cry from her child that she suddenly heard as a as a call from God, not just from her child, I found that totally fascinating. But several people, more than one, sent me pictures of sunrises. <laughs> it's interesting. Were you up early enough this morning, Jim, to see this? Wow. I looked out my window or I was walking and God made a bid for my attention and I remembered your sermon and I stopped right there and I turned toward God in prayer. Not necessarily even to speak, maybe just to listen. God is constantly bidding for your affection, constantly asking for your attention, constantly inviting you to be restored in your connection to Him for which you were created. It's a powerful idea. It's been life-changing for me.
You know, I thought it was maybe just me. I, I wondered, is this common? I started to do some reading, and that was helpful. I mean, people talk about conversational prayer, just kind of talking with God through the day. And this was something even deeper than that for me, this turning toward God thing. And, and, and so I was with Chris Clifford, and I ran it past him, and he told me how God had been working in his life in this same way. I said, dude, if God is doing this in our lives, do you think we ought to share it with our people? He said, yeah. Yeah heart to heart, a restored connection of your heart to God's. It's more than thinking rightly, believing rightly, or having the right political ideals or whatever. That's what we've made it all to be. It's not that. That all flows out of this. This is, this is the connection with God for which you were created, and I was created. So prayer is restoring the connection between our hearts and God's hearts. It's synchronizing our heartbeats with His. Righteousness, justice, love, faithfulness, boom, 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 boom. Now, Chris did a great job of ushering us into thought about living justly last week and grateful for his words. But if I'm right about this input-output thing, everything he talked about is impossible for you unless we get what I'm going to talk about today right, and that is that we've got to somehow be more in touch with, back in touch with God's righteousness. And what does that mean? Righteousness is a loaded term, don't you think? I mean, you tell me what response you think you'd get if you went to my backyard and, or close to it, and you and you went to Tyson's today. I know you don't go to the mall anymore, but if a lot of people do, trust me. And, and if, you, if you happen to have to go to the Apple store or whatever, and you make your way over there, and, and you decide, I'll conduct an experiment. I'll walk around, and I'll ask every person I see, when I say the word righteousness, what do you think? Raise your hand if you think you'd get more negative responses than positive. Raise your hand if you honestly believe you'd get more positive responses than negative. Righteousness. Righteousness. What's it about? What's it mean? It kind of frights us in a way. The word in the Old Testament is the word sedek. That's the word that's in Psalm 89. That word sedek is a really common word, and it is, by the way, very closely tied to the word for justice. That is, this is really the same word, but in a different expression of the same word, which kind of undergirds the theory that I just shared with you about input and output. But anyway, Sedek in the Old Testament literally means straight. I love the Old Testament. I love Hebrew. Hebrew is very, very visual. It's not until Greek and the New Testament that we get into Greco-Roman theology and kind of this mind space gets big and we start to, we start to think it out so much. In the Old Testament, it's just, it's just very visual. What is God asking you to be? Well, straight. Straight. I'm pretty sure this is the word that Jesus used when he talked about walking on the straight and narrow. That was the road of righteousness. When he used that word in the Aramaic, all of his apostles knew what he was talking about. He said, the low road that leads to God or to the kingdom, however you see that, the road is straight and it's narrow. But the road that leads to destruction is vast, it's broad. It's the one you'll fall on by accident. Straight, just, righteous. In the New Testament, this becomes something of a theological idea, a philosophy. So we take the word dikaisani, and it means acceptable or justified. And pretty quickly, we see the opposite of this word. Not to be straight is to be, well, I mean, crooked. We understand what it means to say that someone is crooked, don't we? And in the New Testament, not to be justified by God or acceptable to be God is to be self-justified and therefore self-righteous. So unless God's righteousness is poured into us, what we will have is self-righteousness and self-justification that is the broad way that leads to destruction that Jesus talked about. Righteousness is being in line with God's plan and thus acceptable in His sight. So I want it. 
I desire it. This is something I want to be. I'd like for you to be able to say that I, I'm righteous. So I would love it if I could achieve this. And so I set my sights on that, right? I'm going to try to be righteous, except the Scriptures tell us that we're incapable of that. We don't even know what it is. You can't make this stuff up. It can only come from God. So the Apostle Paul says famously in Romans 3.10, if you memorize the Roman road, you know this is a piece on it. There is no one righteous. What? Not even, hold up your finger, one. Just tell your neighbor that. Just say there's no one righteous, not even one. Okay. But, but here's the problem is when we say that, the way we say it usually is to turn that finger down and point. There's no one righteous, not even one. But we're supposed to be going, there's no one righteous, not even one, not even me. Not on all the earth is there one righteous. Interesting statistical thing happened this week. I don't know if you were paying attention, but the, populous, the most populous nation on earth, soon to be surpassed probably by India, but the most populous nation on earth became a little less populous last year. So for the first time in recent history, China lost population last year. That's amazing. I'm just going to tell you because I've been to both China and India. And let me tell you something about being in these two places. There is one thing you will never feel in these two places, and that is alone. So Debbie and I traveled with two of our very close friends to China, John and Deborah Upton, a number of years ago, all around the country, especially the southern part of it. And I marveled at how many people there were. Tiger, I've never seen this many people anywhere. There's no place in America that's populous like this. You know, if you took, this is interesting, if you took the entire population of the United States and you crammed it into California, you still would not have the population density of Japan. Think about that. So I was in China and and one night we decided after dinner, big dinner, we, we need to go for a walk. And so we're in Shanghai and it's the middle of summer. And let me tell you about something about Shanghai in the middle of summer. It's two things. It's crowded and it's hot as some place. And so we go out and we you walk out of your hotel, you're immediately drenched in sweat. And so is every other person touching you on every side of your body. True. We decide we'll go walking down the river because that's what everybody does in Shanghai. So we go down the river and several things are happening there. First of all, you can smell chodofu everywhere. Do you know what chodofu is? Spicy tofu. Spicy tofu is, uh, is tofu that's cooked in rancid oil. It's a street food in China. It's the French fries of China. Everybody eats it except me because I think it's horrible. I can't bring myself to like it. I've tried. But you smell it in the air. And so all these smells of people and chodofu and other street foods, everything that's out there, it's like a carnival atmosphere. And you go down and you walk down the river. And we started walking down the river together, the four of us. And at first we were all holding hands, not the four of us, but I with Debbie and John with Deborah, his wife. And we're, we're walking down. And, 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 and I, at some point we released hands because you're so curious. You start looking around, you know. You're taking it all in. You're looking around, and I'm just looking around and marveling, and I think I'm talking to my group, and suddenly I'm just talking to air, and I turn around, and they're way over there, like the distance of this sanctuary from me almost. And what's happened is that I've been separated from them by this huge crowd, and, and not just by space. I mean, there are thousands of people between me and them. I don't even know how many people, and I can barely see them. And they're calling out to me because I've gotten lost in my way down this river. And and I just call out as loud as I can, I'll see you at the hotel because there's no way to get back to them. Can you comprehend this? It's true. There is no way to get through that crowd and back to them. Impossible. What you have to do, this is good advice if you ever go to Shanghai, is you got to get down to the end of the river walk, to the end of the river, and then you can veer out and back around. You go back to your hotel, which is what I did, and I waited in the room in air-conditioned comfort for them. And they came back. So many people on planet Earth. More and more. So many people who have lived on the face of the Earth, and there is not one 
righteous except for Jesus. Not even one. If it could be achieved, someone would have achieved it. If it could be done, someone would have done it. But like that walk down the river, as we walk the road of life, more and more things in the world get between us and God, and that's what we call sin. And those things that are different than the plan of God, not as straight as the plan of God, not justifiable by God, not what He planned for us, not as magnificent, not as wonderful as what He intended. We become something other than the artwork that He made in us. And farther and farther and farther separated from the love of God. Or at least it feels that way, seems that way. Not even one righteous person. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Jesus, who had no sin, the only righteous person who ever lived to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 1, Paul says, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Jesus told his disciples, seek first the kingdom. And whose righteousness? Tell me, whose? His righteousness. Not ours, but his. And all these things will be given to you as well. This notion, this idea that God gives us something that we can't attain for ourselves, even imagine or understand this righteousness that He imparts to us as the inflow of our hearts from the outflow of His, this heart-to-heart connection that gives us something we never even really knew existed, that takes us by surprise and astounds us, that wakes us up and calls us to a new life, a, a transformed life, a richer life, a more meaningful life, an abundant life, an eternal life. This righteousness that God gives to us when our hearts are aligned to His. Such an amazing thing. Such an incredible gift. You know, there's an excuse that we make for our sin, isn't there? I mean, we come to accept it. We do and I mean the sins of commission, the things that we do, the little white lies or the big things that we know are wrong. Deep down in our souls we do. And, and the sins of omission, the things that we fail to do to glorify God, the ways we fail to live justly. These sins of commission and omission become normative to us so that we laugh about them with each other. We justify them together. We say, <laughs> I'm only human. only Jesus was perfect. (laughs) I'm just human. No. No, you're not. Jesus is the only truly human. That's what we were all supposed to be. The Bible says so. He's the last Adam. He's what every one of us was intended to be. That's what God planned in the beginning. He's the straight line. He's the justifiable life. He's the standard, and and He is the only true human. What we do is we, in our theology, we make Jesus superhuman, something that we can never actually aspire to. We laugh about it. (laughs) I'm not Jesus. But the Scripture says that if we are followers of Jesus, we are to be like Jesus. So we laugh and we say, I'm only human. No, let's change our language. Can we be honest? Can we start saying to each other, the problem is I am subhuman. I am less than God intended. I'm out of touch with Him. My heart's disconnected from Him and I am I'm so restless that I start to hunger and thirst after all the wrong things. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger 
and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you have it? The hunger? The thirst for His righteousness? One of the best books I have read on justice in years is written by a young lady named Jessica Nicholas. It's about the love of justice. I don't know if Brownwood's read it or not, but it's fantastic. Such a simple explanation of what it means to live just, justly and love mercy. And in that book, she writes, think of righteousness as living inside of instead of up to God's standard for the right life. I'm just going to read that again because it's amazing. Think of righteousness as living inside of instead of up to God's standard for the right life. When I try to live up to something, I fail every time. I set this standard and, and, and try to be perfect and try to get it done. And before long, I'm writing things in my journal like Paul wrote in his. The very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I do not want to do, I do. What is the matter with me that I cannot achieve this high standard? Why can't I reach this? Why can't I aspire to it? Because I'm not even capable of understanding what it is. I don't even know what I'm reaching for. So it becomes the not only unattainable goal, but the unknowable goal, the unseeable goal, the undiscernible goal. And so this goal of living inside of Christ, inside of the heart of God, of living in His righteousness, it just makes me breathe. It just gives me hope. Leaning toward God in constant prayer is the process of hungering and thirsting after righteousness all the time, all day long. Now, if you have a Bible with you, this is the Scripture you want to be open to. Because the Apostle John has such an amazing way of describing this. This is 1 John chapter 1. John is the most astute theologian of all the apostles, and yet sometimes he writes stuff that is so attainable, so understandable. And in the case of 1 John chapter 1, I find a description of how I live within the justice and the righteousness of God, how it is that I live inside of the heart of God. John writes, this is the message we have heard from Jesus and declare to you, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Oh. Well, now this makes sense. You talk about righteousness, and I get all these big theological ideas. I'm overwhelmed by the word righteousness. I can't even quite understand what it means. What does it mean to be right, justifiable, straight? John tells me, in God, there is only light. Now listen to what he's saying because what he's telling us is everything is plainly visible. There's nothing hidden. This is not some secret society. There's not a secret code to be cracked. There's not a book to be written about the secret idea of how this can be done. It's all plainly visible in Scripture and plainly visible in the life of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. This is the message we hear from that crucified and risen Lord and declare to you, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, you, you can't even ponder that kind of light. There's no place in your whole life where this exists other than the righteousness of God. In your home, no matter, turn on every light in your house, there will still be a hidden drawer or a hidden cabinet or a hidden corner. Turn every light on in this sanctuary, and there will still be a hidden something. There will be a shadow, something that cannot be seen. But in God, there is no darkness at all. He is pure light. So if we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth because also our sin is plainly visible in that light and cannot be hidden. This is why John says we love darkness so much. We can hide in it, make up our own justification. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, our hearts connected to His heart, and yet walk in the darkness. We're lying. 
We're simply not living the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. Aha. Now, what is John saying here? He's saying you can't find the light by yourself. It is impossible for you to even discern it. You can't know the difference between light and darkness in many cases, but you can trust this, that Jesus is always in the light. Amen? He's never in the darkness. Amen? If I want to find the light and I want to stay in it, this is really simple. What do I do? Well, I stay with Jesus. Stay with him. There's an art to following somebody. You know that, right? Have you ever had somebody follow you who doesn't seem to really want to follow anybody? And so what they do is they put several car lengths between you and them, and other cars start getting between, and then you go through a traffic light, and yes, it was yellow when you went through it, but they could have made it if they'd been on your bumper. But no, 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 they don't like to follow you at all. I was in a funeral procession this week where someone did this, and they wound up making the wrong turn. We watched them as we passed by. Why? I guess they don't like to follow the people who clearly know where they are. They were out of towners. Just follow Jesus. Lord, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to keep my heart connected to yours. Lord, hold my hand and take me every step of the way, and then I will never, ever be out of the light. So the whole key here is to be in constant fellowship with God through Jesus. The whole key here is to have your heart connected to God's heart, and if that happens, then the righteousness of God is attainable to you even though it is inaccessible to you in any other way. The righteousness of God can be realized by you, even though you can't accomplish or achieve it by your own spirit or will. He purifies us from all sin. So the blood of Christ justifies us. The blood of Christ renders us forgiven. But if we claim to be without sin, we're deceivers. And the truth is just not in us. So how much of this is about recognizing and confessing sin? I guess a lot, because then John says, if, 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 if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Again, if we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. We call that blasphemy. And his word is not in us if we confess our sins. What does it mean to really confess our sins? Do you by any chance have, I'm praying you're not one of these people. Do you have in your life, an I'm sorry you feel that way apologizer? Do you know what those are? Uh, These are the people that you go to them and you say, you wounded me, you hurt me. You did something that offended me. You you did something that, at least as I understand it, is wrong. It could be that that it's recognized by the justice system, but uh, more often it's by somebody that you care about. And and that person is telling you in, in any way they possibly can... I'm telling you, you've hurt me badly. And your response is cavalier. Your response is to say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. In other words, it's your fault, and I'm positive of it. Your feelings are the issue, but I really haven't done anything wrong. Not my fault in any way. You've given this apology before, and so have I. But I have people in my life who are habitually this kind of apologizer, and this is not a real apology. Why? Because it totally and completely lacks empathy. There is no connection with the pain in the other person's life, none at all, and no willingness to admit that we're responsible for it. I've told this story before, but it's been a while, and I've told it in less detail before, but it's been a while. But, you know, I often say that 
that there was a breakthrough moment in Debbie's and my marriage. We've been married 35 years plus, 33 of the happiest years of our lives. The first two for us were the hard ones. Thank God, just get it over with. If you're gonna do it, get it over with at the beginning. There's no point in putting it at the middle or the end to get it over with. And so at the beginning, we were two strong-willed first children who were positive we knew the right way, each of us. And it happened not to be the same way a lot of times. So there was this constant back and forth, this constant lack of regard, of lack of respect, in, in my opinion. And, and a lot of it was from me. And you know, here's the thing about knowing somebody really well. It could be a friend, could be a fellow church member, could be your spouse, could be your child, could be your parent. You know someone well enough, you know how to get them, don't you? You know how to wound them. You know what's in the trunk. You know what they bring. You know the pain they've experienced in other places, and you can hook into it, and you can magnify the effect. And so that's what we did a great deal. Let me say that. That's what I did, at least. Debbie can speak for herself. And one night at about one in the morning, so early in the morning, we were in a very typical conversation and discussion. It wasn't a... It was an argument, but it wasn't a fight, really. It was just bickering, going back and forth. And in the course of this conversation, there was a moment where Debbie said something which was not atypical to what she'd said in the past about something she was wounded about or something that hurt. And she took the risk of saying she was really hurt. And I turned around and something unexpected happened to me. I don't know why. I don't know how. I do know we were both praying for God's will in our relationship. And I turned at her and I looked into her eyes and I saw a deep well of pain that I had ignored. It was dark. It was heavy. It was deep. And I looked into that well and I saw a big pile of pain. And most of what was in there had my name on it. Jim, Jim, Jim. And I heard her heartbeat instead of my own. And I was so lost and broken that I started to weep uncontrollably. There'd never been a moment like that before. And when I started to cry uncontrollably, she's like, what is wrong with you? And I said, I am so, so sorry for every time I have wounded you intentionally or unintentionally. And then I started to name the times and the, the ways I knew I'd did it, done it. And when I finished, she said, I forgive you. And I am sorry that I've hurt you too. And that was it. I don't even know if I can describe how it that was. It was a total transformation of our relationship, a complete change. And from that point on, I never couldn't see her pain again, but it was completely invisible to me before that. And while I, I don't want to equate marriage to our relationship with God exactly, I'm going to say that when we experience fellowship and relationship in life, it is, it is in the image of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when it is what it should be. That's what the fellowship of the church is supposed to be, through the heart of God. And I'm going to tell you that the reason we don't want to see the pain out there is because we know we've caused a lot of it, and we don't want to admit that we're sinners, that we're wrong. And until we can really confess our own guilt until we can see how cold and callous we have been, until we're capable of going and saying, I'm so sorry. And we start that with God. I'm so sorry, Father, that I have driven the nails in Jesus' hand. I'm so sorry, Father, that I have wounded you by living off the straight line that you planned for me and becoming somehow less than human, less than you intended me to be. Lord, I'm sorry. And I'm broken by it. I'm driven to my knees by it. 
changes everything. If, John says, we confess our sins, then he is faithful and he is just. And he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Don't miss faithfulness and justice there. Two of the qualities of God's heart that we can replicate. Peter says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. The righteous. But you can't become this by yourself. So that means the eyes of the Lord are on those of you who are in touch with the heart of God, living inside the righteousness of God, living by His strength, His power, by the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If you love the King James like some of you do, that's kind of beautiful poetry. The prayers of a righteous person, what? Availeth much. But did you miss the context of James teaching, the brother of Jesus, teaching on this? Therefore, confess your sins even to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Then the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If you confess your sins, confession produces righteousness, and that and only that can make prayer effective. In fact, I've come up with a little formula that confession and contrition, that's true confession, confession and contrition, plus God's truth truth and wisdom in the place of the sin equals connection to God's heart, which is what you long for, yearn for, were created for, not just now but in eternity. So how about David's prayer now, thinking about that? Can you claim it again with me? Read it. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Can you hear God's heart beat? Can you sense it flowing into you, through you? Can you synchronize your heartbeat? his. You know, it's an interesting thing. You don't really know your heart's beating until it's not. And if it's not, you may not know long, but for a moment, you'll know it. Were you watching NFL football the night that Denny Hamlin fell to the ground? Uh, Derek Hamlin fell to the ground. I didn't actually mean to be. So we were in Asheville, North Carolina with two of our best friends, John and Mary, and we'd been out to dinner and we came back and we decided we would go to the suite that I was in and play Farkle. <laughs> you ever played Farkle? It's a really stupid game. It's so much fun. So we're Farkling. And John and I turned the television on in the background. This is a big game. Bills and the Bengals, and we wanted to see what was going to happen. So, so it's, it's on behind the game. Suddenly, one of us is getting ready to roll, and I go, hey, man, what's happening? What's, what's going on? We start watching. And then the game stopped. All conversation about anything else stopped. Life like, felt like it stopped right then. It's silly that it did. Think about it. Millions of people's hearts stop beating a day. It happens all the time. 
But something about that moment just stopped the world. How did it happen? It put us in touch with our mortality, didn't it? How fast it could happen. How quickly one unintended, even if violent action could just stop his heart dead and cold right there. And there he was dead on the field right in front of us and his heart just stopped. And when it stopped, it it just captured our attention. Because the only way to connect our hearts to eternity is to connect them to God's heart. Otherwise, someday, you will hear your last heartbeat and it will be over. Unless His righteousness has become yours and you have become His righteousness, as Paul says, lived within it. This is His plan for us. It's a beautiful plan. Above all else, keep your heart for everything you do flows from it. And when our hearts are synchronized with God's, anything is possible. So, Father, we will listen intently. And we will seek to hear the beat of your heart. And we will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seek to connect our hearts to yours and to know your righteousness, your justice, your love, and your faithfulness. And in order to do that, we desperately need your forgiveness. So, Lord, hear us as we speak to you and sometimes to each other the sins that are plainly revealed by the light of your love. Forgive us through the cross and the shed blood of Jesus. And give us your righteousness. We hunger and we thirst for your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, friends, together we are all new, all in, and all out. You go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. You got a lot of heart, and that's why I look forward to seeing you again soon. Have a great week. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.